Hello and welcome to the podcast, Natalie Nahai In Conversation, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me and some wonderful guests as we explore how we might reimagine humanity in the face of accelerating technological advancement, ecological disruption and systemic change. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalienahai.com forward slash in conversation. And for additional books and resources, check out natalienahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I speak with Thane Laurie, an award-winning chief executive officer, author, and Buddhist practitioner. A graduate of the University of Aberdeen and the University of Glasgow, Thane has had a diverse career which culminated in his leading and transforming a once-struggling social enterprise, which went on to win numerous business awards both locally and nationally, including the prestigious Sunday Times Top 100 Companies to Work For in the UK. Attributing this success to nurturing a strong workplace culture that focuses on the staff at the very heart of the organisation, not only has Thane published in academic peer-reviewed journals in the field of health science, He also recently authored a beautiful book, The Buddhist CEO, which chronicles a moving tale of a man trying to balance his commitment to the ancient practice of Buddhism with his role as a modern-day leader. At a time in which finding the headspace to even consider a contemplative practice can feel beyond the reach of many of us, Thane's compassionate, practical and down-to-earth approach towards mindfulness and presence offers a route towards salving tender hearts and soothing restless minds. Thane, welcome to the podcast. It's nice to be in conversation with you. Where are you joining from today? A pleasure to be with you today. I'm joining you from Aberdeenshire in northeast Scotland. Oh, just gorgeous and cooler than uh, sweaty Spain. (laughs) So I'd like to start with the question that I invite all my guests to um, tackle to get us into the deep end. And that's what do you think is going on in the global human psyche right now, if we can take that frame? Yeah, interesting question. Um, obviously, I'm I'm coming from a, a Buddhist perspective, and I often think back two thousand five hundred years ago, the Buddha said that the human condition was characterized by a sense of suffering, and he used a word called dukkha, which was quite hard to translate into English, I believe, and it's been characterized as suffering. But I think by that he meant a general unease, a general not feeling comfortable in our own skins. And I wonder if that still holds true two and a half thousand years later, today. Certainly the feedback from writing the book would kind of um, emphasise this for me, um, that there's a number of people have reached out to me, and the main character in the book, I suppose, on the face of it, they're successful. They have a good job, they have money, they have material things, they maybe have a a marriage or a partnership, um, children... And they wonder why they're not happy. Sometimes people still feel this sense of suffering that the Buddha pointed to. And I see that, um, I think that that describes the collective consciousness, a sense of maybe an angst and unease and a confusion as why people maybe aren't happy. And I think maybe the difference between the Buddha's time and now is that it's being compounded further, potentially by things like technology. And in particular, I think, I think things like phones 
Uh, I know you're interested in AI, maybe maybe we'll get into that later on, but certainly phones and the continual scrolling and the continual taking us away from ourselves, thinking about other things or into the future or the past other than being present to our lives. And I think also maybe there's a it's compounded further by for certainly for some people an angst around the world, the state of the world, politically and environmentally. So I think that that kind of um yeah, I suppose what the Buddha said two and a half thousand years ago, that there's this underlying unease, disease amongst people, it still holds true today. Mm. It's interesting what you say about the kind of the quest for success and status and material wealth, not being able to, I guess, kind of address that deeper sense of discomfort or, or longing for something that's maybe not met. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot recently and how, especially when things get difficult, is not the material things beyond obviously beyond the basics we need to have security and food and shelter and and all of that stuff so if you're not living in precarity beyond that it's not those material things that give us any kind of lasting comfort it's often the hug from a friend or a walk in nature with with a loved one or some sense of connection and belonging that really is an, sort of anchoring us to place and making it possible to withstand the discomfort not necessarily erasing it but certainly being like a companion to it somehow. Yeah, yeah, you said some interesting things there. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I certainly felt during COVID, it really highlighted this for me. Um, you know, we were locked down and things that I'd taken for granted, you know, that maybe I was even, um, you know, just sort of neutral about going for a coffee with a friend. Yeah, I looked forward to it or going to meet somebody for a meal or, uh, you know, just some sort, of, some sort of connection that I think we all that we all thrive upon and we all we all really want. And when that was taken away, I think people really realise that oh, these things actually mean something. They're actually significant. It's not necessarily the car or the other things that bring my happiness. I'm actually miss seeing my mother and father or I miss, I miss going for a coffee with a friend. And it's something that struck me quite a lot in my own life because as a meditator, I really missed meditating as a group during COVID. I used to attend a, a group in Aberdeen City near where I live and it fell away just before COVID and fell away altogether during COVID for obvious reasons. And we restarted it, um, I restarted it um, locally about a year and a half ago. And what's amazing is that we, so we have a, period of med- two, a few periods of meditation and we do a, a scripture recitation. And then we, then after it, we have a coffee. We'll, we'll have a tea and a coffee. We sit together as a group. And some people who uh, come to the group say that's the bit they look forward to the most. And um, it's actually regarded as one of the three jewels of Buddhism, the Sangha, which is the, basically the community. And there's something about this sense of community, just sitting together, having a tea. Sometimes we just talk about the weather and everyday things, or one of us read maybe a little passage of a Buddhist scripture and we discuss it. But it's, I think people really need that. I think it's that feeling of connection to other people and feeling of just being in a trusting, um, caring community. That's, there's, no, there's no, it's maybe different from work. It's, there's no judgment. There's, you don't have to do anything to sort of get ahead. You're just sitting, you're just taking part in the group. You can be quiet, you can speak, you can, you know, if you say something, you're not going to be ridiculed. And I think people really, really need that. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And I'm, I'm curious for um, for myself, because I did read it in your book, we're going to talk about that in a sec, but also because I've forgotten, because these facts kind of come into my mind and they flow out like water. What are the other two jewels of Buddhist teaching? Well, one is the historical Buddha, um, the Buddha and the person that lived, there's a reverence for him and a reverence for what he did. He kick-started, I suppose, the whole 
the whole thing, I suppose, in terms of his teachings. The other one is the Dharma, which is the, the body of Buddhist teachings. So I've got respect for the, the Buddhist teachings, not just necessarily from the Buddha, but all of the great teachers that have come down the line since. And the Sangha being the community, um, you know, there's something special about that sense of community. Mm. Beautiful. So this is the perfect time to launch into your book, which is called The Buddhist CEO. Beautiful cover, and it feels really nice in my hands as well. I always, I'm quite tactile, so I like it when things actually feel velvety, which it does. And it's a really wonderful, very inspiring and moving read. And I'd love to ask you, before we get into kind of the story and the principles and how they can help guide people today, what was it that moved you to write the book in the first place? I'd always had a little bit of an ambition to write a book. And I think life got in the way. I got married and two children and uh, ended up in a, a fairly busy job. Yeah, just so I got put in the back burner. But as I, my kids became adults, they're 25 and 19 now, I started to have a little bit more time. And I thought, what am I going to write this book on? And I had a whole range of ideas. But a lot of advice is write about something you know. And I thought, well, what do I know about? I've been a Buddhist for 25 years. And at the time, I'd been a CEO for seven years. I was still a CEO and I started writing it. And I thought, wow, I've, I've, maybe this is the area I should write about. And um, I wonder if actually the story of the Buddhist CEO is actually maybe, it's maybe a story I haven't heard many people talk about. And that story is about how many people are out there in the modern world who actually are trying to live a good life are really committed to something. So in the case of my main character, it's Buddhism. But it could be Christianity, it could be Hinduism, it could be the Hindu CEO or the Christian CEO, or it could be the yogi CEO, or it could just even be the moral atheist CEO, just somebody who really believes in trying to live a certain way. But how difficult that can be when it comes up against the modern world. And I thought this was maybe unspoken about or not written about enough, this this, this almost trials and tribulations of a modern person trying to make their way in the modern world, but still wanting to live almost by the rules or by the guidance of an ancient tradition. I was inspired to write about that. I thought it was something that maybe... There's one, there's one term I use only a few times in the book, the suit and tie sage. We often think about, I think, sages or... I don't know, the, the female equivalent, say genies, I don't know, but people who want to live this life has been in the past. But I think there's many of us now, maybe standing next to them at the bus stop every day, people committed to living well, but find it difficult when they come up against the modern world, but still trying anyway. And I thought that, that tale was something worth worth writing about. Mm. And I think also there's this kind of, this sense, I don't know if you get this as well, but with all the conversations that I have around the podcast and at the, the salons and the gatherings that I attend or go to, there's often this question around how to reconcile the values that we cherish with the life that we're inhabiting and the kind of pressures of society. So whether it's in the case of being in a CEO position, having to manage people and wanting to be compassionate, but actually also having to be very boundaried and clear, and there being certain consequences for particular kind of damaging behaviours, let's say, or if you're working towards a world which is less extractivist and yet you have to make money to put a roof over your head and food on the table the world is is full of I guess complexities but also in some ways it's hardly possible to be without hypocrisy so I have certain values about not wanting to create waste and yet right now because I'm in Spain I've got the air conditioning on yep it's with a company that's a green energy company but 
you know, the stuff that's created there has come from manufacturers that probably use coal supply chains to create, you know, so there's like, it's really hard to extricate yourself from um, a system which is so complicated. And in my mind, it comes back to this question, perhaps again, of suffering. Like, is this the nature of life as we experience it, to be full of complexity and hypocrisy and suffering and our kind of invitation, if you like, or the way to kind of show up into that is to try and navigate as best we can, knowing that it will never be perfect. Yeah, you've touched upon some things that I think about as well. And uh, I think you're right. I think it's impossible to necessarily live a life that's perfect. And I I don't even think Buddhism's talking about that. And certainly, hopefully, my book isn't trying to portray a perfect life at all. Um, One of the things I've greatly admired about the monks, Buddhist monks that I've got to know quite well is they're very quite quite open about that, and you know they they've told me things like, you know, if you if you have a tendency towards anger and you become a monk in the monastery, that anger will soon show itself in the monastery or whatever your character trait may be, and that's okay. It's working with that. It's a lifetime's work, but I do agree with you as well that the hypocrisy, like you, I would try and try and live a life that's fairly um, environmentally friendly. But I went and hauled it in Mallorca recently. I flew there. Um, I haven't taken that many flights in my life but I've taken about seven or eight and I'm aware of that you know and I drive a car and put petrol into it it's very hard not to do these things I try and drive as infrequently as I can recycle and and, and try and take energy from green companies and things like that but I think it is very difficult to do that and if you try and set yourself up to be perfect I think it's almost impossible however I don't think that's uh, means we should all be negative and give up. You know, I think it's that you said, we think we should try and keep trying to live a good life. And I think by trying to do certain things, you make a difference to the world. So am I a perfect person? No. But through meditating and through trying to practice mindfulness, I think I'm slightly more peaceful and hopefully less confrontational than I would be if I didn't choose to live that way. And I think that's a good thing. Um, I think setting up ideals is quite... I think it's quite can be quite dangerous. I think it can be quite easy to do that in a particularly in a spiritual way. This is the way people should live, and you know, they should all act in this certain way. And I think that's impossible to achieve. Um, but there's something about the trying, something about the commitment, and maybe the main character in the book faces all the difficult difficulties he faces. He doesn't give up though. He keeps going. He believes that living a Buddhist life is what he wants to do, or in your case, living an environmental life is what you want to do. And I think just trying the best you can has got to have some value to it. Hmm. So let's talk about Hamish, the main character in your book. I'd love to ask you, because there are so many different elements in the book that touch on the very sort of fraught challenges that CEOs can come into contact with, whether it's, and most of it's human relationships, like with board members or with difficult employees or people who are clearly suffering and you have compassion for them but their behaviour becomes so disruptive that there's no other path but to move them into a, into a different place where they're not at the company and they can't cause hassle. And so I'm curious, of all of the different stories that you include in this wider narrative arc, what are some of the ones that most maybe challenged you in the writing of them that you think have real resonance for today? So what were the sort of the biggest problems that this character Hamish encounters and how does he navigate them? Yeah, I think some of the... The most difficult situations he faces, as you've touched upon already, are the human factors. And almost all of the CEOs or senior managers I've worked with, I know, and I got to know some CEOs quite well, it was just universal. They all face some horrible 
horrible challenge that, that resulted from a human a human factor. Now, whether that was a difficult member of staff or a difficult relationship with their chairman or their board, um, yeah, it was just sort of universal that. And I think that was a, that is the thing that really we- wears people down. I think in the workplace, um, I think it wears senior people down, but also maybe if somebody is toxic in a workplace, it wears down their colleagues as well. And I think that's why Hamish felt that if he didn't deal with some of these situations, they're never going to. He's never was never going to have a world class culture or a, or, a, or a compassionate culture in his workplace who didn't deal with these things. I think how he deals with it in the book and how I deal with that with it to some degree, I think Buddhism helps him because he's got uh was almost given a set of values to some degree in Buddhism. So we'll have precepts and um, all Buddhist schools pretty much agree in the first five. He's a Zen Buddhist for, I don't want to get too confused, a slightly different taste, all the, all the different Buddhist schools. But he has a ten Bodhisattva precepts, which are, are lined outlined in the first chapter of the book, and um, he he thinks that's quite a useful moral guide. So I think when he, he when he goes into leadership situations, he knows how he's going to act before he gets there. So he knows in his own mind that he wants to be compassionate. He wants to give people a chance. He wants to try and use the right language, have the right effort, the right action, and um, take that towards his job. And maybe as a leader, show that to people. And he wants to give people a second chance. So he does believe that somebody does something wrong, unless it's really wrong. It's a general rule. He wants people to uh, you know, have a chance to point out to people and give them a chance to to uh, change that behaviour. And if they don't, that's what he feels he's been fair. And he can then morally, he feels morally, well, I've given them a chance. They haven't changed or act upon that. But he also draws upon that idea a little bit about Sangha, I think, which we've touched upon about community. And he feels alone, like a lot of leaders do, I think, because particularly maybe the CEO or the leader of a, maybe a division, they find it very difficult to share their inner struggles with colleagues because they are the person they feel, and maybe rightly, they want to show the right um, effort, the right um, approach to work. So they want to, they want to be positive. They want to show that they're keen and enthusiastic. They don't want to show people they're down or they're struggling. I know I felt that, and I think Hamish felt that, that when he goes into work, it was difficult for him to say, I'm struggling today, because he wanted to show this positive outlook. So in the book, he he does think about that, um, you know, how could I get a sense of community? Because some of the problems he faces aren't, how to deal with them aren't taught in courses. And, you know, how do you deal with a toxic person? How do you deal with a difficult chairman or a difficult relationship with a board? These are things that are often unspoken about. And I think many CEOs feel their way into it and just have to sort of work it out as they go along. But he reaches out to CEOs, other CEOs, in a chapter called Fellowship of the CEOs. And he wonders, what do they feel? Do they feel like me? Do they feel unsure of what to do? Do they feel confused about their role? And then when he reaches out to some of them, he finds they also feel, these, although they may be very good at what they do, as he was, and maybe in the face of it, very successful. They do have these inner struggles as well. And he creates a, a, a small group, and he calls it the Fellowship of the CEOs, where they share their struggles with each other in a professional manner and offer advice and support to each other. And he, he gets a lot of that, and it comes back to this. Even CEOs need this sense of community. In fact, I sometimes wonder if they need it more than anybody, actually, because um, it's quite a lonely place to be. But uh, So, yeah, so Buddhism sort of informs how he tries to deal with his leadership challenges. And I think the other thing that's really key in the book, um, which you you explore, is the amount 
of stress that people are expected to withstand in these leadership positions. And I imagine that managers, having spoken to a lot of people at that level also, experience equal amounts of stress just in a slightly different way. Well, yeah, you find stress everywhere, don't you? But I think there's something around the loneliness aspect of CEO leadership that can create a particular amplification around the stress that already is there when you can't share your stresses and the way that that can then impact the body and the illnesses that can arise. And one of the, one of the threads that we use throughout the book is what do you do when you realise that you have sort of a, a physical response to the level of stress that then stops you in your tracks and how do you reckon with that and find a way to maybe embrace is too kind of gentle a term, but kind of cohabit with it in order to make life changes so that you're taking a more holistic picture into account so that you're not just being the good leader and making the money and making the change in the world, but also looking after your well-being. What are your thoughts around that? Like, can you speak a little bit to that part of the book? Yeah. One of the um, most surprising things to me, having written the book, is the amount of people that have reached out to me, um, actually from around the globe, but certainly locally as well, people that I, I know as well as CEOs, have actually, I've had a pound for every coffee I've, I've had for uh, <laughs> to discuss the book with people. I'd, I'd probably be <laughs> pretty rich. But, um, but the, the people that have reached out have all reached out for the same reason, saying, I identified with that. They're, they're almost always not Buddhist, by the way, particularly in North East Scotland. There's not that many of us. But, um, but they've all said that they were successful but they all, all all did or still are feeling this inner struggle and they feel the effects of stress which I think is really a big thing in society now I think there's so much stress yes at the top but I agree with you all the way through expectations and you know I think business really has to think about that how we treat people and what's the point of a business and um, it's not worth making people unwell for but I think um, I think I mean what happened to Hamish I had something very similar happen to me and I, I look back on it, you know, Hamish in the book becomes ill and he's di- diagnosed a neurological condition that's likely brought on by his stress. And um, he also, in the fellowship of the CEO, he observes that even though the people in that fellowship are highly successful and very good at what they do, he, he when he gets to know the people well, he observes that they all have, he thinks, an element of stress that's probably gone beyond what's normal and that may be They've openly told them they go to their doctor for for support in some way around stress, or they've got tics and just little nervous um, characteristics that he notices that he thinks are down to stress. And he's not critical of that, he just observes it. And he becomes ill himself, quite a shock to him, because he's in his late 40s, and um, yeah, he becomes so ill, he eventually has to come off work near the end of the book for some time. And a lot of the books, him sitting, meditating and thinking about how did I get here, you know? And I think for him and probably for me and for many people, as you can look back and I think you can get so caught up in the job. I was quite good at leaving the office at, say, six o'clock, but I was still thinking about it. Even when I was meditating, I was thinking about it. I went to sleep thinking about it, finances and oh, what's happening here and why does somebody say that? And I think when you become ill, I think many CEOs and maybe just many people in the workplace really identify with their their work. I am a joiner. I am a policeman. I am a CEO. I'm a podcaster. I'm a writer. And when that's sort of taken away from you quite quickly, or you're under threat of being taken away from you, I think it's a real psychological um, struggle 
And people ask me how I dealt with my own uh, stress-related troubles, and I say it's a, it's a mental game. It's really, you know, you could you could get down so quickly, which thankfully I never have, but I realise I would do a lot of work to sort of stay on top of that. But I think we can have this idea of who we are is I was I was Thane or Hamish was Hamish, the CEO, the all-conquering CEO, the CEO who knew what to do, the CEO who achieved things, who turned a company around and made it successful. And there was a lot of pride in that. Um, but obviously it can be unhelpful when it's taken away or it starts to be attacked, I suppose, in terms of your health. Maybe that, that, that image can no longer be sustained. You have to leave that job. And I think it's really, really difficult. And... I suppose there's two things I'd say in that. One, I think we really, really have to think about that as a society, how we treat people and how we run businesses. And I thought in Hamish's case and my own case, no, the case nobody was really treating me un, un, that unwell or that poorly. It was maybe a lot of it my own mental constructs. But I think we need to keep an eye on CEOs. And something I've said another, I suppose when I've been asked about the book, is there's so much, quite rightly now, about how leaderships of an organisation should look after the company and the staff which I 100% agree with. But quite often the leadership are forgotten about. They're the ones looking after the people below them. Somebody needs to look after them too. Yeah. Uh, I think that's some, I, I wrote a paper for my own board. I'm still, I'm still, I'm not the CEO anymore, but I'm still the vice chairman of that company. And I wrote a paper saying, we've got to look after the new people. We can't let this happen again, sort of thing, you know. And so it has been taken on board to some degree. So it's very difficult, but um, for me as a Buddhist and a meditator, and I'm not trying to persuade people to become a Buddhist. There's not really a notion of conversion at all in Buddhism. But what I really like about Buddhism, it points to there being something deeper in life, um, deeper in the world. It's beyond our identities. And it certainly really struck me when I came to it. It's maybe different from the Western view of the world, that we are our individuals and we are our identities, who we are sort of thing. And to some degree, it has to be true because we have to go out into the world and be somebody and sort of relate to the world in some way. But Buddhism points to there being this deeper sense of um, peace and compassion that's in us almost naturally. It's just there, and we just have to get in touch with it. And certainly that's how I dealt with a lot of my difficulties and then illness. I felt that I was, you know, through, through meditating and keeping keeping hold of that view or that feeling, maybe I'd even say, you know, that it's not necessarily just a belief, it's something you experience it's through meditation and mindfulness, that there is a natural... Sometimes Buddhist scripture would talk about the Buddha nature or the, the cosmic Buddha, but something in us that we can touch upon. And I've always felt that as a meditator, that that's kept me going through the dark times, that whatever is going on here in the mind, there's something more, there's something I can connect with that's deeper and is actually roots me in the world, even though I'm being blown about by the winds of the illness or the winds of my leadership, you know. I love that idea of being rooted in the world through the sense of felt compassion and kindness one of the things that's always attracted me to buddhism and i'm not practicing anything well no i have my own kind of practice but I'm, I'm certainly not religious but there is something that has always attracted me about buddhism and there's something around in some practices the simplicity and the embodied aspect of reaching into a place of witness so whether it's just noticing your breath or loving kindness meditation to me it seems like there's there's something really life-affirming that it starts with a grounded connection to the body, which a lot of other religions in my mind just don't don't anchor themselves there. It's always very abstract or, yeah, I mean, we can go into that another time maybe, but, but there's <laughs> something very, <laughs> very firmly rooted in this life as an access point for this, this sort of well of, of compassion. I was listening to um, 
a really wonderful podcast that I really enjoy, which which is called The Way Out Is In. Oh, I, I know it. Oh, you know it? Yes. Plum Village and Brother Fapu. And um, he was the, I'm sure there's a particular word for this. Maybe you know it. He was kind of the person who would take care of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh when he was living. Is it assistant to? Certainly in our order, we call it a chaplain, yeah. But as assistant or chaplain, yeah. Yeah, and so and I was listening to this this morning at the gym. <laughs> I really don't enjoy the gym. But it was because it was a, a combined podcast between um, Brother Fapu and then um, Cristiana Figueres and the people who do the Outrage and Optimism podcast. And there's two brilliant British chaps. But um, one of the things that they talk about, and I wrote it down on my phone, which is somewhere around here, actually. I'm going to get the... Hang on, let me get it. Because it was such an interesting perspective, especially when weaving back to the, the question that we were touching on earlier in our conversation around how to live in a world which is quite complicated and hypocritical sometimes, and how also, especially now when there are these kind of multipolar traps of, of all these interconnected problems and they're very overwhelming to think about, what do we do in trying to create a world of less suffering and more beauty and more joy? And this is a question that comes up in my mind as well. It's like, what do we do about it? What do we do? Where's the solution? What can we actually act out on? And one of the chaps says, when he's talking about how, how transformation can be possible, he says that actually it doesn't come from the expected places necessarily. It comes from a pause out of which what is needed now arrives. And there's something around that. And then he goes on to talk about coming home to oneself and coming home to others and how if you don't nourish the body through beautiful food and it can be very simple doesn't have to be complicated and through community and through pause and practice and rest then the rest is going to come from a place of sort of the reserves which might be frustration and anger and not from a place of being really filled up with energy and being able to actually enter into the world nourished and well does that make sense I don't know it just and I thought of you and I was listening to this ahead of our conversation um because it really it really resonated with me yeah, it's interesting. I, I listen to that podcast and absolutely love it too. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that um, the Plum Village is actually the Soto Zen tradition as well, the same tradition I follow and that Hamish follows. So, um, yeah, so it's in the language is actually very similar. I agree that the, the things you said there, these, these interest me too. And I don't have the answer, but I think one of the answers is one thing it's overlooked, I think, and I think that's what um, that, that podcast has tapped into, and hopefully the book does to some degree, is very rarely do I see in the world when we are looking for answers, because it's so complex, there's not one answer, like, there's multiple answers, but people overlook the power and the benefit of silence. And one of the greatest experiences I ever have, and I'm, I'm going there next week, but the, the Hamish, the main character, goes to Throstle Hall, Buddhist Abbey, which is a real place. Although in the book, I, I, um, yes, I don't use real names of monks. And, you know, it's, it's fictionalised the things that have happened there. But I go there. Why do I go there? Because some people might think, why on earth do you go there then? You get up at 5.45 in the morning, you go to your bed at 10 o'clock, your phone doesn't work when you're there, there's no TV, and you spend quite a lot of the day working, actually working meditation, as well as actually sort of sitting in meditation. But what I found there was quite a revelation, actually. That there was something about the sincerity of the place from the monks and other lay people like myself going there. And I was, it was the only time in my life, and still is the only time in my life, where I experienced silence on a level that it's profound, actually. It's, you think silence might be boring. but <laughs> So in the morning, we all get up and you know we wash half an hour and then we meditate for a period and there's breakfast. And it's working in meditation. So it goes on like that. 
But when we have breakfast, it's usually done in silence. And when we work in meditation, we're given a job to do. It can be anything really. It can be chopping vegetables. It can be washing the toilets. It could be cleaning floors. It could be you know doing laundry. Again, it's all done in silence, not an enforced, rigid silence. If you want to ask somebody for you know, directions or what do, am I doing this correct, that's fine. And occasionally, they stop for tea in the monks and we have a bit of chat, you know. But so, but what I get from that silence is I've never experienced a sense of connection to other people that comes through that silence. And I remember, if I, I describe this in the book, actually, which was taken from a real story. There was a woman who had to leave early one of the retreats and she actually stood up, and she wasn't supposed to, but she did. And um, she said, I've got to say this to you, I've got to leave early. And there's tears coming down her face. She said, I've never felt so connected to a group of human beings in all my life. I just want to say to you before I go, can I love you all? We hardly said a word to each other because we're in silence. And I just wish you all the best. And I have that feeling when you leave. It's a sense of someone's working together in a rhythmic fashion. But everybody's working with a purpose just to keep them honestly going. There's no ridicule. You know, just you know, you're not being criticized what you do. Everybody's everybody's sort of welcome for playing their part in it, you know. And monastics almost seem like something so far out of modern society. I think they offer a lot. I don't even think they realise how much they offer sometimes, but I would actually encourage anybody if they can. And I don't even I could probably be any monastery. It doesn't even matter the the background of it, but there's something about spending time in silence. And I certainly about simplifying life, I think. I try and do this. I don't try and do it perfectly, but as we said earlier, it's the trying to do it. That the, Zen, the Zen Buddhist view is that enlightenment isn't, an enlightened life isn't to be found in the future. It isn't to be found in a mystical mountaintop. It's to be found in everyday things. So you know, we can make our tea, we can wash our ho- clean our clothes, clean our house. But often we're, we're thinking about the future and the past when we're doing it. We're not actually present to things. And minds just do that. I mean, you're a psychologist and what I mean, but they just, they're, they're constantly thinking. But just sort of drawing ourselves back to what we're doing. And a few seconds later, we're thinking, we draw ourselves back. <laughs> that goes on and on many times. There's something about this just trying to be present to our life. I think can bring people a lot of life and a lot of um, peace in their lives. And there's not an answer. How do we fix this mixed up world of ours? But I think we've got to start somewhere. And I think starting with ourselves is a pretty good place. And if everybody took up some sort of practice and I'm not, you know, something that helped them ground themselves, whatever that practice would be, I think it'd be a pretty good starting place. Mm. So maybe let's explore that a little bit, because one of the themes for this season is how we can adapt and kind of cultivate greater resilience when there's so much turbulence. Um, And it looks like it's probably going to be an increasing turbulence as opposed to a decreasing turbulence from all of the issues that we face with AI, with biodiversity loss, climate change, you know, all, all of the things. And you've mentioned your practice. And one of the things that I really like about the book and kind of yearn for on one level and then also seem completely incapable of managing in my own life, <laughs> despite efforts, perhaps not enough effort, is having some kind of daily rhythm or practice that you prioritise. And I think basically it's about priority. Uh, she says, basically, I'm sure it's more complicated than that. But but of having a daily practice that orients you back towards a still centre or this desire to kind of root yourself back, to gently bring yourself back, like you were just mentioning. For people who are listening to this, like myself included, who are not practising Buddhists, but who want to find a way to kind of root in and not be so toppled by the various storms that come in, What's something simple that people can do? Yeah, well, I, I think, I know that and certainly the monks would agree with this, that starting your day with meditating or something else that really appeals to you that's maybe 
Tai Chi or yoga comes to mind as well, but there seems to be something incredibly powerful about meditation. And you know, you're a psychologist, but my my reading of psycho psychological literature suggests that meditation does seem to have a very positive effect on our minds and bodies. And there's different ways to meditate, but how I do it, just very briefly, is um, something referred to as zazen or just sitting and um, have no focus at all. So we just sit, and I try and create a. Almost a sense of reverence, not necessarily in a religious way, a sense of reverence for me or, or for the person sitting. That you could you could just come into a room and you could sort of sit down, cross your legs, or meditate, and you know, I'm exaggerating slightly there, but we bow quite often, not as necessarily as a religious, you know, to bow into MDL. So we're really bow into ourselves. So we bow to where we're sitting, the seat, almost thankful for it. I bow this is something worthwhile. I'm breaking my normal pattern of thinking. This is, you know, I'm, I'm actually going to give myself to this. And so I'd bow, I'd take my seat in a meditation stool, or you just sit in a seat. And I take a few deep breaths, two or three deep breaths, the centre of my mind. And I just sit and be aware of my body. Um, I just, I'm aware of sitting. What happens is minds think. And in fact, this is one of the reasons why people are put off meditation. They, they think they're trying to clear their mind. They think they're trying to, you know, get to some great place, but you're not. You're just trying to be, actually, I would say, having meditated for 25 years, it's actually impossible to clear your mind. <laughs> and even monks have backed it up. Minds just think. It's what they do. Because in Buddhism, it's just looked as another organ, you know, it's just, it's just doing its function, thinking. So you find yourself thinking maybe 20 seconds down the line, if you're lucky, and you're thinking about what you're having for your tea or what somebody said at a meeting. And the key then is compassion. Bring yourself back. Don't get frustrated with it. And you just keep doing this. Time and time and time again. And you maybe set yourself a time to do that. 10 minutes to start with, 15 minutes. I, I try and do half an hour if I can, but if I'm busy, I maybe do 20 minutes. But the, the amount of time isn't really that important. It's better to do a minute a day rather than 20 minutes every second week. So I think. So, but if you can do 10, 15 minutes, that's a pretty good amount. Now that maybe sounds like that is completely and utterly not profound in any way at all. <laughs> Sitting in a room, <laughs> thinking about things, bringing, bringing your mind back. But if you do that every day... My experience is, and you can only prove this for yourself, is it's actually very profound, this simple practice. There's something about this letting go of the thoughts and coming back to the moment that I've found in my life, not become perfect at all, but somebody annoys me, my mind reacts this way, I bring myself back. Somebody cuts me up in the car, my way to react, I bring myself back to the moment. And, um, yeah, that seems to have a an effect on me that helps me be more humble more peaceful and more more content yeah I think the fact that you can only you could, you don't have to do like a half hour stint you can start with a few minutes is probably a nice entry point um and so I wonder one of the questions I've been thinking about recently having been to Embercombe earlier this year is this question around what do you most profoundly love which is not one to just pepper into conversation but I feel like <laughs> as we're talking about Connection and compassion. Maybe it's a lovely one to touch into now. Yeah, what do I, I suppose I love a lot of things, but um, my family, um, Buddhist practice, um, being in the outdoors. But as I hear myself saying that, I suppose all of these things actually are almost connected by connection. So I love, and you know, my wife. I love my wife dearly. We've been together twenty five years. We've got two kids. I've been here longer than 25 years, 26, 27 years. Two children, 25, 19, um, love them dearly. 
And I suppose the other things I said there was my connection to outdoors. I love being in outdoors. I'm a keen bird watcher, as you know. And um, yeah, and I love I love the Buddhist practice. But I suppose when I hear myself saying that, I suppose that all of that to me in many ways signifies connection. So I feel alive because I'm. You no, know, I suppose I love my family, and I, I really enjoy that. I'm a, I'm a family. Buddhist practice, I think, connects me to the world, connects me. I thought a lot of it's silent. In some ways, that maybe seems counterintuitive, but I think it does connect me to the world, connects me to me, connects me to other people. And I do love being in the outdoors. It's just, um, I'm fairly regularly in the outdoors, maybe even daily, at least take a walk somewhere, you know, and um, that's something about seeing seeing nature. I don't think you can be in a city like Barcelona and still have that. Hmm. I live semi-rurally, I suppose, and nature's on my doorstep but um yeah i think as i need to connect with things i suppose that gives me a connection to people the world and the you know um, spiritual side of things as well so one of the things that really struck me in the book kind of speaking about connection and this longing and i've I've had i had an experience i'm not going to go into the details of it but but recently where i i was i realized how in some ways it feels very luxurious how luxurious it can feel to live in a context where I have my community and I have um, access to things I really love to do. So the music, the art, my work, the podcast, interesting conversations. I experience life in Barcelona is quite easy because the priorities are different to what they were in London. So it's, it's not so much about, at least for me at this stage of my life, not about driving ambition and status. It's more about connection and pleasures and having a nice coffee at the end of the day with friends or whatever it is. And I realised through an interaction recently that that's quite a blissful state and it's it's also a bubble. It's a very lucky thing to be able to experience years on end without having that sense of, for me, it's like a sense of safety punctured by an interaction with someone that can be quite unexpected and aggressive. And one of the things that comes up in your book is what to do or ways in which to handle situations where someone might come in and be quite aggressive, and there isn't a way to reach out to them and and to reconcile in a way that is going to create a sort of a, a path forward where, where you can both stay together. So if a CEO and an employee, if a person is unable to reconcile with the CEO, there's no way for them forward in the company they're going to have to leave. And, and that I find that very difficult to accept. <laughs> it's like, but it is something that one has to encounter and, and deal with, hopefully less rather than more. But so I wonder when it comes to these sorts of situations where despite your best efforts for connection and perhaps your best intentions, there is rupture and aggression and hurt that cannot be reconciled. What can people do about that? And maybe the doing is more of an internal shift in perception or sense. Um, but what do you advise? Because that's, that's something that's, especially for people in positions of leadership, I imagine probably quite hard to get away from. Yeah, certainly my own experience and just experience of other leaders. I think that anybody listening to this who's been a leader for certainly a few years would almost definitely have come across either a situation like that or multiple situations like that, unfortunately. The way I approached that was, you said something earlier on about the, the podcast um, from Plum Village that is very much, I suppose, the Buddhist view is that through Buddhist practice, and you don't have to be a Buddhist to practice, I'm, what we talked about already being mindful and, and meditating and just being grounded in ourselves. I accept there's different ways to do that other than Buddhism, it's just one way. 
it's very much about trying to, science the monk use a language, I think you actually maybe said this phrase or you said something very close to it. We find our true home. And that true home is not dependent upon the nice coffees or the the friendships in Barcelona, etc. Although that's great. If you've got that life, you know, value it and love it. And don't, don't be guilty about it. But the point I'm trying to make is if we can be present to our true home, which I said earlier on is this something beneath the mind. There is, this Buddhist, I suppose it's, I hate to use the word belief. It's more of a, by practicing Buddhism, I feel that. There's something whole, almost holding me below that and it's often characterised that, that great the great wave painting Japanese painting of the, of the wave Buddhists li- often see life like that so my life is or our life individual life is a wave on the ocean so it arises at some point and it falls back into the wave at some point somehow this wave is, is what's holding us whatever that is but to me it's characterised by a sense of being in your true home uh, for me I, I try to take that into leadership so Obviously, when I was in these situations that were horrible, uh, where you do have a breakdown, where some of these behaviours you feel, and you're the person making those judgments in that position, whether they're right or wrong, you feel, you know, that it's broken down to a, a, a point where, you know, there's no continuation because it's damaging for the company on all sorts of levels, particularly with two senior people. I I always try to be in my true home. That doesn't That wasn't easy, but I tried to ground myself. So I think in Hamish talks about, you know, before a meeting, he sits there, he's, he's a, but be aware, honest, he's aware of the tension in his body, he's aware of how he feels, but he also thinks, tries to ground himself in that true home, and he tries to think, how can I bring that element into it, i.e. compassion, etc. So I think in these situations are horrible, I think knowing where you're coming from, knowing your own boundaries, knowing your own values, which I talked about earlier, I think Hamish knew that, and hopefully I do, as a Buddhist, and you can anybody can make their own set of values they want to, but if they know them and internalize them and believe in them, they'll know how they're going to deal with that. And I think compassion can be found in all these situations. I mean, for Hamish, the way he found that was, you know, there's things, the situations described in the book where somebody has to leave and he has to get rid of them. But he tries to do it in ways where he recognizes, for example, maybe this person sitting in front of me is a younger person. Um, in their 30s I don't he doesn't want to kill their career so you can give people an opportunity to maybe to move on in a, in a way you know that the you know CEOs will know this is maybe more hidden you know the the put out a statement they've left of their own accord there's, there's different ways of doing things I think you know which I think have a, a notion of compassion to them but I think just doing it from that place, you know you're doing it for the right reasons you know you're doing it to improve the company you know you've tried to rectify it. It hasn't, it hasn't been reciprocated back. You have to take a decision. But yeah, know it's coming from your own place of values, your own morals, and you, you know you know you're acting well. I, it allowed me to sleep at night. If I just went in there and raised my voice to people, which I actually never did, ever, I hope, um, I didn't, didn't think that was part of leadership at all. Even in these situations, I felt you had to deal with them in a way that was professional and, and compassionate. And um, yeah, come from your true home. Mm. I really like that. And I think especially when it's something that maybe we communicate and it just lands really badly. And there's the question of then how you, or at least for me, I overplay things in my mind. So then it's it's a sense of, especially if I haven't intended harm, and I can tell that the other person is is upset by something. And sometimes there isn't a conversation to be had because the conversation just stops. Uh, then I think the compassion part 
maybe is around extending that compassion back to yourself and when you're replaying going, what else could I have said or this or that or the other, um, to find a way to to hold that with a with a looser grip, perhaps. You, you said something interesting there. Two things I thought might interest you, but one is you said about compassionate for your compassion for yourself. I find that universal, it's almost universal, including myself in that, that the hardest person to show compassionate to is yourself. Um, yeah, and I, I, when I became ill, that was one of the, and Hamish talks about this in, the, um, in his journey, that I realised that I spent a life helping other people. And I think that's quite normal, not saying, look at me. But, you know, you know, I was, you know, hold the door for the old lady or you know, a person you know, in a wheelchair trying to make sure they get through the door okay or... You know, if somebody's struggling, they're trying to help them in some way. Somebody drops something in a shop, help them pick it up. And just, just I think of things that are natural. But I didn't often think about how that person felt who was being helped. So maybe they felt frustrated that somebody was opening the door for them. They wanted to do it themselves. And when I became ill, and I was very ill in the, in the first few years, certainly the first year with this neurological condition, thankfully I'm, I'm not fully better, but I'm, I'm, I'm a lot better than I was. But um, it was a strange thing to become the person who was now being helped. Actually, and it took quite a lot of psycholo- psychological sort of acceptance to sort of get hold of that and or get get my head around that, and, I, and it could put people on on e- uh, make them uneasy because they were like, "How's they got the act of I try and help them?" Or you know, and really, the, all they wanted to do was to help. But eventually, I, re- I got into that and actually quite enjoyed it, and I saw the compassionate side of people. How we often think the world is negative, but you know, people offer to take them out for a coffee or. My dad and I are both bird watchers and he would drive me out to places because I didn't want to miss out on that. But I didn't have the energy to really walk. So we just stood next to the car with our binoculars and watched things. And just so nice he did that. You know, he was pretty, he was probably frustrated. He probably went to walk on and do things. But he never showed that. And I just thought, I saw all these little compassions shown towards me. And when I started to accept that, it was um, it was quite uh, quite joyful. But I think having compassion for ourself is, um, is really important and, and it's difficult. But... Something that really interests me about Buddhism, or certainly Zen Buddhism, there's a, I suppose, a genre of art. You're an artist, you probably know more about this than me, but I have read about this. But often the, 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 the Zen and the Buddhist art depicts a, a very small person. In fact, it's almost hard to pick them out in, in these beautiful mountains, and they're often maybe meditating in a hut or walking along a river bank. And the people are tiny. And I think, to me, it seems to be quite different from Western art. You'll know more about this than me, but what it meant to me was that, and I find this quite reassuring, not, not, and some people might think it's the opposite, but we are actually quite small in the cosmos, that's shown us, you know, that my worries and your worries and there are our worries, but they're not, they're not huge. And something about that actually I find quite reassuring, actually, just remember that I'm trying the best I can or most of the time, okay, I get tired and grumpy, maybe I'm, I'm slightly off beam, but I just something about this just reminds me of that art, those images that were quite small in the scheme of things, and um, we're just doing the best we can, and it, just, it doesn't have to be, we, we, we can accept, try and accept that we're, we're not perfect, we're just trying to do the best we can, and we'll, we'll have our foibles and our, our uh, make mistakes, but there's something about that image of this, us in the great cosmos, just, we're, we're, just, we're just a small part of it. Mm. That's beautiful. It's uh, it's interesting because um, one of the things I learned in art history, this amazing woman called Alba, who's a good friend of mine now, um, she taught us this at the Barcelona Academy of Art, was was the concept of the sublime and how in the late, and probably prior to this, I think, but in the late 1800s, people would often paint individuals in landscapes 
and um, it was always kind of pointing towards it's almost this dual emotion of awe at the beauty and the majesty of this extraordinary, powerful, phenomenal landscape, whether it's mountains or the vast sea or whatever it might be, and then terror at the fact that it's so much bigger than us. We can't conquer it as much as uh, some folks might like to. And it was this kind of dual sense of awe and terror, this sort of sense of the sublime and how these things often live together. But in various conversations I've had with folks who um, have experienced in various different types of altered states, whether through meditation or um, trance or psychedelic experience, this sense of being but one tiny part of a much bigger constellation of existence, being quite a liberating sensation. Uh, that there's kind of, if you move beyond the part of, oh God, but what does it mean for me and for my life? Then there is a sense of this, it's almost, I feel it like almost as a sense of homecoming. It's like, well, it doesn't matter if you've got, if you're just one note in this huge symphony played by this orchestra, then what a glorious experience that that can be. Um, obviously with all of the suffering and the beauty wrapped in there together. So I was hoping, because we're coming close to time on this section, if you might be open to either reading one of your poems, of which I've had the joy of listening to, or one of your father's, depending on how you feel, I would love to listen to either or both, if you feel like you would like to recite one. Okay, I'd probably have to look to my phone to get some of my ones, if that's... Yeah, go for it, please. Well, I write a daily poem, so I'm just going to select select oh, one. Yes. I put a daily poem on social media, so just let me have a little look at now. I get, and they're very short because I write them on Twitter. And we've got to pick them pretty randomly here, so if people want to follow me, we can maybe get into it later on. They're for free on social media every day. Last night, more heavy rain. Pools of cool, dark water decorate my garden. I watch sparrows bathing themselves, washing away the summer grime. Yesterday's storm clouds have dissipated, leaving a deep blue sky. I sit zazen, listening to the birds chatter. Mm, that's so beautiful. Last night, a late evening stroll along the marina. Gazing back at the town, the lights of the tavernas slowly beginning to shine against the backdrops of the mountains, excited voices drifting across the sea. Is that from Mallorca? That's from Mallorca, yeah. Tavernas <laughs> in Scotland, yeah. Pubs in Scotland. I could hear with a taverna. I was like, that sounds... Uh, yeah, I was on yeah. a, a recent holiday in Mallorca. Um, I'll pick another one. Morning meditation. Another warm day in the north. The garden is still wet from the thunderstorms of two days ago. Flowers soak up the soil's nutrients. And just be swaying gently in the breeze. The sparrows are busy, just like my mind. I love this. And the nature is just so alive and present in your poems. You want one more? Is that enough? Or? Yeah, let's do one more. And then, I'll, and then I'll close with two extra questions. But yes, read one more. Morning meditation. The day is warm. A heat wave has been declared in Scotland. A rare thing indeed. The garden is dry. On my walk yesterday, the path was rock hard beneath my feet. I will water my garden later. Give some respite to the plant beings. I love this. This is so, they're so sort of restful to listen to. And I think because I see things quite visually when, when I hear the descriptions, it kind of transports me to your, your Scottish garden and the, the thunderstorms and the pools of water and the birds. 
so briefly, and maybe this isn't a brief question, but we are coming to time. So, uh, and I think we've touched on this already, but I do like to end with this question, which is how do you orient yourself towards life and beauty on dark days? I heard a saying recently, it's really stuck in my mind. And it was really talking about Zen practice, but it can be Indies practice, really. But it was saying that, you know, that giving something to life is how I describe it, you know, on a dark day. Committing to a practice is a beautiful thing, whatever your practice is. And I thought, and this to me encapsulated, and it said, I suppose it said Zen practice is ordinary, peop- or, is ordinary people doing ordinary things in transformational ways. And I thought, there's something about that. It's, it's ordinary. So life can feel so ordinary. But actually, if we give ourselves to it, it's wonderful. And we, to me, that said, we don't need to be, we don't have to have everything. That, you know, we don't have to have all the massive house, the massive car. I'm not against those things necessarily, but I think what it said is ordinary thing, Ordinary people do ordinary things in exceptional ways, not trying to talk about in exceptional ways. So we can cook our tea in an exceptional way. We can wash our house. We can certainly I try to regard my house as a temple. So when I clean the house, I'll joke with Andrew, a temple cleanup. And it isn't a temple, but in my mind, I think, no, I've got to treat it like that, you know, so polish things and hoover things like that. These things can become expressions of an enlightened life. And I think even in dark times, for that helps me. So when I became ill and I really sort of threw myself into housework, bizarrely, because uh, I, I didn't have the energy to go out, so I had the energy to stand and maybe make my own kitchen and cook things and do little things here and there and keep things tidy. And I allowed those simple things to actually become joys, and they actually did. I couldn't force that, but I just let myself come to it. So I would say if anybody's feeling dark or dark times, just look at what's around about you. Just, th- just, just allow the simple things to liberate you. Beautiful. And very accessible. Thank you. <laughs> so um, if people want to learn more about your work and read your poems, you mentioned Twitter. Where are the best places to find you? What are the best links? Well, my website probably has it all. I have a website. It's quite a simple website, thanelaurie.com. So my name will be on here later on, just thanelaurie.com. On there you can get you can find out where to buy the book if you fancy buying the book, The Buddhist CEO. But I also do a blog on there. I write a blog post usually twice a month. One blog post has been an update just on what's been happening with the book because people have been interested, i.e. links to the podcasts I've been on or articles about the book. And another podcast, usually once a month, I do something on, I just share my thoughts on something just random, really. But usually, you know, uh, what, would I, what, would I, what would characterize a Buddhist CEO or you know, how do we find happiness in life? How do we deal with stress in the workplace? And I was writing with a Buddhist flavor to it and... Uh, yeah, I usually include a couple of my poems in that blog post as well, my two favourites in the month. And on the on the um, the website as well, it's got links to my social media, Twitter account. Twitter's what I like. I'm on LinkedIn as well, quite like LinkedIn and, and Facebook. And I write a poem every morning, about nine, 8 to 9 a.m. in UK time. Post it on Twitter, then I copy it to Instagram and Facebook. So if anybody wants to see those poems that I read, it's, all that's free, by the way. The blog posts are free as well, so... You can subscribe to it or just check it out when you want. And uh, if you like what I, the poem I do in the morning, you can subscribe to my Twitter account or whatever and uh, follow that if you like. Wonderful. Dane, it's been such a pleasure being in conversation with you. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you.
Thank you for listening to Natalie Nahai in Conversation. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do pop over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen and give a rating and a review. It really does mean the world to me to read your support and it keeps me going to create more seasons, especially as this is a self-funded project into which we pour hours of work creating, recording and producing each episode. To find out more about my work and how to get involved in my projects, you can sign up to my newsletter at natalinahigh.com, explore additional books and resources at natalinahigh.com forward slash resources and you can follow me on Instagram and LinkedIn at natalinahigh. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.